has two nerdy bookworms. We appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're sharing tips for reading Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. Today, we are really living up to our mission of trying to make the classics readable, relevant, and fun. That is so true. So (laughs) this is an episode that we originally shared with our Classics Club on Patreon. And we just wanted to offer some tips and tricks for getting into Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte because it's a Victorian era novel. It's kind of long. There's a lot to pay attention to. And we just wanted to give everyone an opportunity to get the most that they possibly can out of their reading experience as we split this into a two-part episode over the month of September. Yeah, we have been really enjoying doing these two-part episodes. They let us go a little bit deeper into some of these lengthier, meatier classics. And they also let us do deep dives on Patreon. So as we mentioned, we shared this episode with our patrons early We are also doing some extra Jane Eyre content for our patrons throughout the month of September. So if you haven't yet signed up for the Novel Pairings Patreon and you love Jane Eyre or you really want to nerd out this September, this is your time to join. We would love for you to join us at patreon.com slash novel pairings at the lit scholar level, which is $8 a month. You'll get access to our class on the feminist lens and Jane Eyre and the opportunity to join us for a book club discussion at the end of the month. You'll also get access to all of our backlog of classes and bonus episodes. We put out bonus episodes on Friday. You'll get some Jane Eyre related ones through September. But if you sign up just for September, even you can go back and listen to all of the previous bonus episodes, get tons of nerdy goodness and book recommendations there. Readers, we hope you get a lot out of today's episode and we cannot wait to hear your reactions to Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte throughout the month of September. Let's get into it. All right. Well, this is a big book. It's a tough book. And so we're looking forward to sharing some of our favorite tips with you. I think many of you probably have already read Jane Eyre or are familiar with the story, at least. And hopefully these tips will help you get more out of a second reading or really be able to Uh, dive into a first reading and get beyond the surface level plot with your first reading still. All right, Sarah, you have taught this book. I have only read it as, uh, I guess I've read it like for fun, maybe twice. And then I've read it as a grad student, like three times. (laughs) So we're bringing some different perspectives here, but I am curious, especially about your teacherly advice for us. What is the number one tip to keep in mind for reading Jane Eyre? Well, I don't know if this is my number one tip, but it is the first tip I'm going to share and definitely would be the first thing I would talk about with students is just this book starts slow. So you have to be patient. There is drama. 
A lot happens in this book. It's not, I don't think, a boring classic. But the first third or maybe first quarter is kind of slow. It starts with Jane as a young child. Some some readers actually find that to be the most interesting part and the most compelling part. Um, it's not for me. I, I think it's slower. And so I think sometimes people start reading it. They're expecting this gothic manner and this creepy vibe. And instead, we're getting like a coming of age story of young orphan Jane. And the background of her character is really important to, to the novel. But it's also okay to just know, all right, if I kind of skim or move quickly through this part, I'm going to be okay. I'm still going to understand what's going on. Um, so just prepare yourself for, for that is my first tip. I think with many classics of this era, particularly we're talking Victorian era classics, just getting used to the language takes a while too. And so if you're finding that your attention drifts a little bit as you read, just stick it out for a little while. I mean, I even found that as we were, um, or as I was finishing the women of Brewster place, or as I was getting into it, I should say, just because we're recording these kind of back to back behind the scenes <laughs> for you folks. Um, any book right now that I pick up, it takes me a while to adjust my attention span and get into. If I set a timer for like 15 minutes and don't look at my phone at all and don't think about anything else, eliminate the rest of the distractions, I get into the book so much better. And once I'm in, I can keep going. But just attention span wise, I've really needed that really specific, like set a timer, put your blinders on, don't look at your phone. Um, And so that's just like a general reading tip if you're feeling the same way that I am with books right now. But I think with classics, especially and any classic that's of a different time period where you have to get used to the language, I think that that can really help is just to buckle down a little bit for the first couple of chapters and let your brain get into it without any other distractions. Such good advice. All right, so those are some of our general tips about starting. But let's get a little nerdy now, because this is where I think Jane Eyre can get really fun. This book is a mashup of lots of different genres, and you can read it through the lens of any single one of these, or you can notice the way she is blurring genres and mixing them together to create something new and interesting. So we're just going to kind of go through some of the different genres and subgenres that Jane Eyre is a, a part of. And feel free to ignore any of these during your reading, to latch on to one in your reading, or to, to notice multiple as you go. So first, this book is a relatively autobiographical novel, especially the beginning of the book. So no, Charlotte Bronte didn't, you know, go off and live as a governess in a giant manor with a brooding hero. Although 
Her sister kind of did, so she's picking up some tips from family members. But being sent away to a school that was really terrible to children and where uh, people she loved died, two of Charlotte Bronte's sisters died of scarlet fever, I think. Now I'm forgetting what the illness was um, that everybody at the school caught. And that was a really formational aspect of her life and something she weaves into Jane Eyre. And the fear of having to make her own money by teaching and working as a governess (laughs) is definitely at work in the autobiographical elements of this book. Yeah, we get this written from the first person point of view, which is actually pretty unique for the time. And it it does read like an autobiography. I also, I think that this next genre is fascinating and um, is really fun to pick up on. There are some fairy tale elements in here. And if you listened to our episode on The Bloody Chamber by Angela Carter, we were drawing a lot of connections from those fairy tales to Jane Eyre. And I think that the fairy tale plots are are definitely present if you read The Bloody Chamber and now you're turning to Jane Eyre. That's going to be a lot of fun for you. But in general... Just there are a few fairy tale plots to pick up on. Which ones would you say are primary here, Sarah? I think definitely this is a Cinderella story. When we meet Mm -hmm. Jane at the beginning, she's this poor orphan girl who lives with a wicked aunt, not a stepmother, but who's very wicked and dotes on her own children and is really cruel to Jane. So definitely... Cinderella. I think it's very much a Beauty and the Beast story as well, where Jane ends up kind of trapped in this this castle with a very gruff, beastly sometimes companion who she sees the soft side of, but maybe other people don't. And then lesser well-known, but much more direct Bronte references the fairy tale Bluebeard throughout the book. And that is one that I think Victorian readers would be more familiar with than we are. And it can be fun. I won't go into this story here because I don't know. Are there spoilers for Jane Eyre? I don't, I don't know how many people go into Jane Eyre not knowing what's coming, but I'll just say, you know, look up Bluebeard if you want some fun illusions to look for. But if you are reading this for the plot and you don't want it spoiled, don't look up Bluebeard. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't, I mean, I don't think it's a, any spoilers at all to say Cinderella and Beauty and the yeah. Beast. And I think it's almost like an exact even halfway split of the first half is Cinderella and the second half is Beauty and the Beast. Totally. So, That is fun to pick up on. And then, of course, we also have a marriage plot here. We have this romantic element. And much like the Jane Austen conversations that we've had or 
just any other works from this time period where the only security for women was found in marriage. We see that theme here as well. We see a lot of the class divides in terms of marriage and relationships come up here. Um, and we also have an angel of the house trope. That's a very Victorian thing. Um, Sarah, tell us about the angel of the house. What does that mean? So I always find this fascinating, mostly because I think this trope is still with us in contemporary times. What's what's more interesting is the fact that it was new to the Victorian time period. So prior to Victorian times, women and women's bodies were the the gender or the sex that was much more connected to sexuality and lust and promiscuity. And women were and their bodies were seen as these, you know, objects that could tempt men away from righteousness. And in the Victorian time, that kind of shifted. And women instead became seen as these like pillars of virtue and what a man needed to be righteous and godly and correct was an angel of the house, like a a good, pure woman who modeled modesty and virtue. And I mean, I think Queen Victoria was somewhat, even though you know, she was the queen and super powerful, much more powerful than her husband, but she still put on that angel of the house show with her modest dress and kind of coming across as still submissive to her husband and and all of that. And so we get this flip where now women are like the virtuous ones and men need them to achieve their own virtue. And so we see a lot of Victorian novels where men need to find that good woman who will make make be the angel of their house and make their house a home and a virtuous place. That's a really great explanation of this. And there is more historical context that is just, I think, fascinating around that transition and why exactly there was this societal shift. We'll see if we can sprinkle in some links and show notes, but this is also, I'm sure, a topic that we will cover when we teach our class on the feminist lens and feminist critical theory in our Patreon, our Classics Club here. So we're going to be heavily referencing Jane Eyre in that class and tying them together. So that's something that will come up. But you also just sort of bring up a good point. In addition to an autobiography, fairy tale, marriage plot, there's a lot of morality in this book. Mm-hmm. And it could read also as a morality tale, I think. Oh, yeah. I think that's a great point. It's not the most fun of the genres, <laughs> but it is there. <laughs> it's definitely there. And I, I think... You know, we can talk about this more in our actual episode. I think that is one thing that makes me sometimes, depending on my mood, more of a fan of Wuthering Heights than Jane Eyre, because Wuthering Heights 
is not a morality tale. <laughs> and sometimes <laughs> I don't feel like being preached at in my novels. Sometimes I think Charlotte Bronte is a good enough writer to get away with it. But we can explore that more when we get into the book. You're totally right. I feel like it has, I've changed my opinion every reading and I'm either like, oh my gosh, I'm so annoyed with Jane hitting us over the head with her perfection and all this stuff, but it makes it really fun to talk about too. Mm -hmm. So another genre that this fits into is a coming of age novel. Like you said at the top of the episode, Sarah, this book opens with Jane as a very young girl and we get quite a few of her childhood years and formative experiences as a kid. And then, of course, witness her growing into a grown woman. And I think coming of age is a great way to describe this book. Yeah, I I like reading this as a coming of age story because if you read this and you can't get into the romance and you're not rooting for this relationship, you can still root for Jane and her growth and how much she changes and evolves over the course of the book. And so having that in mind can, I think, help a contemporary reader as well. And then, of course, we all, I think, want to, especially in the fall, read this as a gothic novel. And it very much is both a gothic novel and a book that's commenting on gothic novels. It gets a little bit meta, which I love, but it has all of the like gothic novel tropes. <laughs> we all of all them. Of them. <laughs> there's a mystery. There's like a haunted ish house. There are nightmares and weird dreams. There are like alter ego elements with visions of the uncanny. And we have one of the epitomes of the Byronic hero in this book. Yes, the Byronic hero. He is, he's not exactly an anti-hero, but he's a little bit of a cross between a villain and a hero. He's dark and brooding. He is upper class. He's charming. And yet, really moody and can get in some really angry rage induced moods or just kind of be this like gloomy cloud hanging over the manor. He tends to be pretty introverted, have some secrets, be well read, um, and have some just emotional wounds that he needs <laughs> healing. This hero still exists in the romance genre today. Um, people might call him an alpha hero or, um, I don't know, a dark hero, but he is also handsome and irresistible and women fall in love with him. <laughs> um, and yet those relationships for Byronic heroes, when we're not specifically talking in the romance genre, those relationships tend to not be good news mm -hmm. with him. He is not uh, emotionally adept and he is not able to handle this, this love um, because of his past. So that's basically the Byronic hero. And of course we get this from Lord Byron 
Um, we talked a little bit about him and Byronic Heroes when we talked about Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Mm-hmm. Lord Byron, what a guy. <laughs> I, man, <Yeah. laughs> we'll have to do a whole episode on Byron one day. <laughs> I would often use the example of Edward in Twilight to describe Byronic, oh gosh, yeah. Byronic Heroes to my teenage students. And I mean, certainly inspired in large part by Jane Eyre, that Twilight relationship. And I think, you know, there's that dangerous but sometimes attractive trope uh, within the Byronic hero trope of, and there's one woman who can change him. Mm -hmm. And we definitely see that here. One of my other favorite elements of Gothic novels is how they can be really psychological And they're often exploring the protagonist's mind and the dangerous things happening in the character's mind, as well as the dangerous things happening outside of the mind in the real world. And so sometimes they use, and I think this is a good example of this, Jane Eyre is a good example of this, the metaphor of the haunted house or the manor house as the mind. And what is out in the open versus what is behind the locked doors? And what does that signify in terms of the protagonist and what they're burying and repressing about themselves? And this is all pre-Freud. So I'm not saying necessarily that Bronte is writing with all of these, like, psychoanalytic ideas in her mind, but she certainly was a fan of symbolism and metaphor. And so I think we can certainly read this house from this book from that psychological lens as well. Speaking of symbolism and metaphor, something else that you can do while reading to just help you really grasp some of the deeper themes or some of the, I almost, I don't know, like literary treasures throughout this novel. Um, Tracking motifs and keeping track of names. Names are really significant in this novel. And when we say motif, we basically just mean an image or a theme that gets repeated again and again throughout the book. And then because of all of those repetitions, you can sort of form a composite picture of what the author is trying to get at by using all of these. And so just a couple of examples. These are not the only motifs. There are more. Um, But there is a lot of fire and heat imagery in here, in addition to ice and cold. And those are often in juxtaposition. There are some really significant bird scenes and imagery and descriptions. Um, there's a really famous quote in here that is somewhat uh, bird-related <laughs> that I think readers will have fun recognizing in the text instead of just like on t-shirts and pins and bookmarks. And so those are just a few of the fun things to pick up on as you read. Yeah, and I think looking for those can help make some of the slower parts of the book more interesting. Like just to note that the fact that 
just to note the fact that Jane is reading a book about birds at the very beginning of this story becomes more important if you know that there's going to be a pattern of this throughout. Some of the names are also important slash heavy-handed. Um, we have <laughs> <laughs> we have Helen Burns, who connects to the fire and heat imagery in this book. Um, Mrs. Reed's name is important. Reeds were used often as, as whips and uh, punishment for young children. So Jane's aunt being Mrs. Reed is important. Things like Lowood, which is the name of the school, which doesn't have a very positive connotation, and even Thornfield Hall, <laughs> I think. All of these, these names are often supposed to give us some sort of connotation about the place. It doesn't mean that you have to like read into every single name and come up with what it means symbolically. But if a name gives you a certain feeling, roll with that. It's probably meant to give you that feeling. This is kind of a side tangent, but something you said reminded me of this. I was thinking just as we were talking about our first point about kind of easing into this book, giving it time if you, if it feels like it's going a little slowly at first. I feel like every time that I've read it, it's gone faster or I've gotten into it that much quicker because of all of these things that I've been keeping in mind. So I'm hoping that for many of our readers, this context and these things to be paying attention to helps get them invested quicker. But if you have already read Jane Eyre once already or four times already, <laughs> um, and you're thinking like, do I want to read it again for September with everyone? Or, you know, do I kind of know enough about it? I hope that that's just some encouragement to you that it feels like it flies by every time that I read it. That's such a good point. Okay. Another thing that can help is trying to imagine reading this in the time that it was written rather than reading it from your modern lens, which we don't always advocate for. Or we tend to say, you know, like, I don't know, it could be a mix. But keeping some things in mind about the time period and the historical context can really, really, I don't know, illuminate this text in so many ways and raise the stakes, I guess I'll say. Yeah, that's a great way to say it. I think one of the key things about that is thinking about like the the feminism or the proto-feminism of this book. And we will certainly be talking about the ways this book fails as a feminist text as well. But thinking about reading it in the time in which it was written and how ahead of its time and just progressive, and Bronte wasn't even that progressive, but some of her views about women or some of the Jane's views about women and what women deserve. Um, it, it can be really interesting to think like, think about how that might feel reading some of these things for the first time, reading some of these ideas about women's value and women's desire for for more for the first time. So I think that can be helpful 
even though you certainly don't have to stay in that place. You can be also quite critical of this book's feminist lens as well. One thing, I don't remember which professor had us do this, but one professor had us read A Vindication of the Rights of Woman by Mary Wollstonecraft before reading Jane Eyre, um, just as a way for us to glean some of the feminist ideas of the time and be able to draw connections back and forth between the texts. And I'm not saying that you have to do that, but it could be fun. Um, Or just, I think, looking up Mary Wollstonecraft and what she was writing at the time and what is in that vindication of the rights of women. I think even just getting sort of the bullet points would help contextualize the proto-feminism, as you said, for Jane Eyre. Totally. That's some great optional homework. All right. You also brought up the question of governesses and their role during the Victorian time period. And that's super important for the context of this as well. Like, What was life like for Victorian governesses that might help us understand this book more? Yeah, I think it can be easy to go into this book. And it's not a spoiler to say that Jane ends up as a governess. Um, But to kind of see her being a governess as her escape or her way out or her best option. Um, And in many ways, that's true. Um, But being a governess was actually pretty dangerous at the time Um, and dangerous in a few ways. So for one thing, governesses were in this really interesting state of limbo between working class servants and upper class society. And their position as governess made it really difficult for them to marry if they wanted to. Um, They really were kind of stuck. Um, It just, I mean, speaking in terms of like the dangers of just being a governess in a house with a Byronic hero (laughs) um, or upper class husband, man, father, who is, you know, hiring you to be in charge of his children and might think that he can take other forms of liberties with you, think that he owns you in some way. I think that that was a risk for any um, people in service at the time of the Victorian era, but um, governesses especially would have more interaction with the owners of the estate with, um, with, in, in this case, Jane has a lot of interaction with Mr. Rochester, which wouldn't necessarily happen for the girl who is cleaning out the fireplace and might never see him because she is supposed to be, you know, never seen or heard from. Um, there are just many ways in which being a governess placed you in a really precarious position, but at the same time, it was also more revered than other servant positions. Um, So you can definitely do a little bit more research on what being a governess was like in the Victorian era, but um, I think it can just easily be romanticized and you think of like, oh, well, she was just a tutor or it's, it's like being a nanny, but there were a lot of other factors and pressures of society that made it not an ideal position to be in. 
Yeah, that's a really important point. I think additionally, just for for like a fun perspective, it can be fun to imagine reading this book at the time it was written in terms of the twists. There are multiple twists in, in this book. And I think for many of us, even if you haven't read Jane Eyre, you might know the big twists that are that are coming because they're such a part of our cultural consciousness. And that's fine because it's also fun to read it and pay attention to the foreshadowing. But it can be fun to try to imagine, like, what would you think about this book if you didn't know this was coming? Like, how would you feel? What would those surprises be like as a first time reader? And yeah, just putting yourself in that mindset. That was one of the things I think that I loved the most about teaching this book was most of my students didn't know what was coming and getting to witness their reactions to it was priceless. So if you have a teenager around and you want to read it with (laughs) them, (laughs) that's another tip because getting to see like that wide-eyed reaction to what what goes down in this book is really fun. I also think being a teenager is such a perfect time to pick up Jane. Yeah, totally. I mean, just the the melodrama of it and the, I don't know, the moodiness of it. I often wish that I would have been able to access it at an earlier age or that I would have picked it up sooner. I think it's, it really is perfect. Well, I mean, like you made the Twilight comparison. It, it can really read like some of those really popular YA novels Mm -hmm. and romantic suspense novels that teens just latch on to. Totally. Okay, Sarah, we say this every single time we talk about reading the classics, and we're not going to stop recommending that you try the audiobook because audio just, man, it just works for so many of these classics. I think, I mean, especially in this case, because it reads like an autobiography, Mm -hmm. And because you just want to sort of like get swept up in the drama and the story of it quicker, the audiobook works great. And there are some great audiobook options for this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think this one is fantastic on audio, especially, yeah, like you said, if you often do memoir on, on audio, this might be somewhat similar because it is that first person introspective lens And then just, you know, strolling on a crisp autumn day, listening to Jane Eyre is a pretty perfect way to spend an afternoon in September, I think. I wholeheartedly agree. All right, readers, we hope you enjoyed these tips and are feeling more confident heading into your September read of Jane Eyre. We can't wait to explore this book with you and would love to connect with you on Instagram at Novel Pairings Pod. Tag us in your bookish posts or send us a message to say hello and tell us how you're getting along with Jane Eyre. So as we said at the top of the episode, Patreon has a bunch more Jane Eyre content for you. Each month we share a literary class. We'll be, of course, tying it to Jane Eyre this month. 
We have a book club discussion and bonus episodes. So go to patreon.com slash novel pairings to join our community. We would love to talk to you there. And we have a bunch of nerdy readers who would be excited to welcome you into Classics Club. We can't wait to read Jane Eyre with you. We have bonus links each week at novelpairings.substack.com. That's our weekly newsletter. So if you want extra nerdy stuff and a peek at what we're reading lately, subscribe there. And a huge thank you to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. Next week, we will be back with part one of Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book.